G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favour, and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called. There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Good to be with you. It's a great day to be in church. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name's Nick. Get the joy of leading this church, but also the joy now of unpacking this epic part in the story of Esther with you. Before I do... uh, just wanted to put it out there, hey, I've got some good news. Jesus is alive. Amen. And that's why we gather every Sunday. But it also means that this year, 
we're going to celebrate Easter again. Easter is coming and it's early this year. It's about, I think, only six weeks away or so. Uh, And so I wanted to put it out there, the invitation that if you are someone who is trusting in Jesus, yet hasn't been baptised, what makes Easter great is not just the chance to gather around the, the incredible reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us, but also gather together around you uh, and celebrate that God has done a work in your life and given you trust and faith in Jesus through the waters of baptism. Uh, baptism is uh, a, a very tangible expression yet very wet. Uh, it's a tangible expression of God's cleansing of you, His promises applied to your life in particular, but it's not just about you. It's also about the community coming around you to welcome you as a rite of passage into the family of God. Uh, and so that means if you are a Christian, you should be baptised. If you are trusting in Jesus, there is nothing stopping you. You don't need to work out all those theological things that you've got in your head. You need to get baptised. Uh, and so if you're here and you're just new to the faith, I wanted to invite you uh, to be considering that and we can journey with you in that. Uh, if you're trusting in Jesus, we'd love you to be baptised. If you are here and you're not so new to the faith, you've been trusting in Jesus for uh, quite some time, but you haven't yet been baptised, you should also get baptised. A Christian not being baptised is like a kid not wanting to open Christmas presents. It shouldn't make sense. It, 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 doesn't, it, it kind of just reveals that there's some kind of irrational fear. There's some misunderstanding. What's going on? It's Christmas. Well, baptism is God's gift to you, uh, and we'd love to help you open it. Uh, so please do. If you're in either camp, you should get baptized. Come and talk to us. Uh, we'd love you to fill out one of the Connect cards, pop it at the Connect desk, and that'll begin the conversation to make uh, uh, your Easter particularly special uh, as we celebrate baptisms on Easter Sunday. Now, we're going to dive into Esther chapter 4. We are on week 4 of our series through the book of Esther. Who's been enjoying the series thus far? Hopefully we'll get some more hands going by the time you get to the end of the series. Uh, Appreciate your enthusiasm. Uh, We are going to walk through uh, the chapter and then come to the end of it and and work out what is uh, kind of the application for us in our lives. But as we open the chapter, we need to remember that there is a death sentence that has just been written into law. And that relativizes the emotional state of what is going on here as we open up to verse 1. By way of reminder, the first two weeks of our series, Esther 1 and 2, was really introductory. We met the setting, the context, the scene there in the citadel of Susa. And then in Esther 2, we met Mordecai and Esther, the main characters that God's going to use throughout this story. But the way that they were introduced to us pointed us to the bigger story of God, Mordecai the Jew. Uh, We heard about his lineage. We heard about his place in the bigger story that God has been writing ever since he called out Abraham and told him that through you, I'm going to make a family that blesses all of the earth. Last week, we heard that there was actually a counter story to that. That yes, there's the line of promise, but there's also enemies that seek to distract and destroy that line. And we met the evil Haman, who was triggered by Mordecai for whatever reason, not wanting to bow down in his presence, whether it was through pride or patriotism. Mordecai refused to bow. That triggered Haman, and he got his way by manipulating the king into signing this edict into law, a death sentence over the Jews. And that has happened now, but we await about 10 or 11 months until the execution of that moment, that edict. 
And so here we find ourselves with this hanging over us. And the author has set up these first three chapters, now into chapter four, in a, such a way that he, he, she, whoever wrote Esther wants us to know where uh, the, the pressure points are, the, this, this, this moment that's about to come. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I uh, had a, a moment, a brain fade moment. I don't know about you guys, but you, know, you spend six whole years in high school, and then years later, all you can remember is the dumb stuff that you did. I can remember hardly anything else about the six years except the brain fade moments. I remember one day, it was a hot day, like one of the days this week, I went to public school. There were a lot of portables uh, at my school. I walked on in to a portable. It's hot. You want to open the window. And so I'm sitting down the back like the cool kids trying to open the window. As I open the window, I realize, hey, there's a tree that's like being, it's the smallest tree. It's it's grown up against the frame of the window. What I'm going to do is if I continue to open this window, I'm going to break the tree. This will, be, this will be fun. This will be a great story for me and my mates. And obviously, it wasn't a physics class uh, because I didn't think about what happens when an unstoppable force, the kind of opening of the window, would meet the immovable object, a tree. It turned out that the tree won. And so the window shattered uh, in front of me. And instead of going to the groundskeeper to say, hey, I've done some free gardening for you, I went to the groundskeeper to say I'd broken a window. I'll tell you that little silly story because Esther 1, 2, and 3 has been written in such a way that we might consider that there is this unstoppable force, the story of God's promises at work in the world coming head to head, bang on in a game of chicken with this immovable object seemingly immovable object, the designs of the evil Haman and what he wants to do to bring down the Jews. And so the narrator of Esther is crafting this like a movie. You'll know in in movies when you meet main characters, often you get their backstory in just a matter of mere moments, mere, mere seconds. Their birth, their upbringing, all the way to their adulthood there as the main character in the movie. But then you'll have about maybe one day or just a few days that take up the rest of the 90 minutes of the movie. Time slows down. And that's exactly what happens in Esther. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 took about nine years. Chapters 4 through to 8 are going to take about five days. And so time is slowing down. The narrator wants us to zoom in and lean in to what is happening here as these two forces come together? Who is going to win out? That is the question that looms large over what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. So let's turn to Esther 4.1 if you haven't got there already and we're going to read it through. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Unmitigated brutal, deep lament. That's what we're seeing and experiencing here. And Mordecai's lament perhaps is even a little bit more painful than the rest of the Jews because Mordecai perhaps knows that he himself essentially contributed to this happening. It was his refusal to bow that got them in this predicament. And so he cries out in front of everybody in public, in the middle of the city. We're told he's wearing sackcloth, and that's kind of an ancient way to express lament where they would create clothes specifically designed to agitate your skin. Likely black goat hair, so that people who were 
in the midst of sadness and grief and lament, would feel physically what they were experiencing internally and emotionally. He obviously visualized it as well by throwing ashes over his head. It's as if to say he wants the world to know that he looks and he feels like what's happened, like death. We're told in verse 2, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It's not just Mordecai now. As news spreads throughout the empire, the whole known world at the time, essentially, news reaches all of the Jews in the world at the time, essentially. And together, they fast, they weep, and they lament. So there's this brutal cloud of darkness over the beginning of this chapter. And we notice in the text the the stark contrast between the people of God, the Jewish people, right across the empire, lamenting, and yet the comfort and the indifference of those who are tucked away in the safety of the citadel, of the palace. We're told that no one who looked like death was allowed to enter the palace. No sadness allowed. They're continuing to go on with their day. This edict has been written. It changes nothing about their life and their desire to enjoy it. It's as if they perhaps, you know, their, their theme song is the theme song of Lego. You know, everything is awesome. That's what's being played in the midst of Susa right now while this goes out across the empire. And so that means that the news hasn't got to Esther because she's deep inside. No one has told her about the edict, but she sees or has told, she's been told about Mordecai. We read that actually now, verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuch came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And so Mordecai is sad, lamenting, grieving because of this horrific, tragic edict that's been really a death sentence over all of the Jews. Esther is upset here purely because Mordecai is upset. There is a big difference between why they are upset. Because in reality, she she has been inoculated from reality. She has been inoculated from the grief because she's in the inner sanctum of the empire. Still, nobody even knows that she's one of the Jews. And so she sends some better clothes to Mordecai. He refuses to take them. He can't possibly take them, given what hangs over his people. And so we see this stark contrast here. In week one, we set up the contrast between the citadel of worldly power and the kingdom that God is building. And we actually see something here just in this text, in this kind of emotional state of the text that might resonate in our own day. Because our Western world that we live in, doesn't it seem in the, in the midst of the loss of the virtue of lament? That our cult, we live in a culture that does not know how to be sad anymore. It even sounds like a, an oxymoron to say the virtue of lament, as if surely being sad couldn't be a good thing. Lamenting couldn't possibly be a good thing. Well, of course, sadness is deeply painful. It's grueling. It's taxing. 
but it's an expression of the felt reality of living in a broken world. Our world seems intolerant of that. We used to have funerals, and now they're called celebrations of life. We used to have the societal day of lament on Good Friday, and now it's the footy. And so we're losing these public mechanisms of being able to express that sometimes life sucks. Death hurts. It stings. There are real losses to grieve and lament in the world. The people of God feel that right now. And they're going about expressing it. And yet the powers that condemn them to death are just blissfully ignorant of it, avoidant of it even. They've made rules to keep that away from them. They only want to stay on the superficial. A few hundred years after what we're reading here in Esther, there was a Roman poet named Juvenal who uh, wrote much about the the decline of the Roman Empire. So different empire than than Persia, but uh, similar scene. He wrote this about the decline, saying, Already long ago, from when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties. For the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything, now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. The seriousness of being a virtuous society, he's saying, was subbed out and replaced with these superficial desires of getting rich and being entertained, bread and circuses. It degrades the soul to only ever be happy clappy. It degrades society to push out sadness and grief and lament to the fringes behind closed doors and hopefully maybe push it out from our memory altogether. You know, sometimes we're the church, we live in the world, we, we bring this stuff into the way we do church. And of course, church should be just oxygen in the midst of a world that sucks it from us or tries to suffocate us. And so there is a sense in which church indeed should be the happiest place on earth. We, we've got good news. We are good news people. And yet it should also be the realest place on earth where you can come as you are. And so maybe you're here today and you're sad. And maybe that sadness and that grief and that lament is the most faithful expression of your experience of the brokenness of your life right now. And so we commend you for your sadness as your brothers and sisters. We commend you for your lament because there are things in life that it is faithful to lament in response to them. There's a, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. God is trying to say something to us that it is okay and it is right to be sad, grieving and lamenting sometimes. And I bring this up because it is another uh, reason why we as God's people need to situate ourselves in the bigger story of God. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned about how when we find ourselves in the bigger story of God, it frees us from that tendency toward narcissism, that tendency towards centering ourselves as the main character in the biography that we're writing with our lives that the world is all looking toward. That our lives, our decisions, our freedoms become the main thing that's happening in the world. Well, when we know we're in a bigger story, that God is the main character who's writing this, then we can be freed from that. Same 
Or similar too is knowing and seeing ourselves in the bigger story of God actually helps us deal with pain, with suffering, with things that should be rightly lamented. Maybe you saw in the news this week that that last Sunday, uh, Ian Wilkinson, he was the pastor uh, who was the sole survivor uh, of that very dramatic uh, lunch that he had with the the mushroom poisoning. Since then, I haven't been to anyone's house for lunch. Uh, I refuse to as a part. No, I'm joking. Uh, But if you serve me mushrooms, they'll be on the side. This guy encountered incredible loss. His wife, his brother-in-law, his sister-in-law, What was he going to say when he finally got back into the pulpit this last Sunday? Well, he said this. He said, the way is sometimes hard, but God is good. He is with us. He promised never to leave or forsake us. And I can say that is true. So when you feel like you've been left and forsaken, if you know the bigger story of God, you know that that's not what's happened, that he's with you in the midst of, of difficulty in the midst of pain. Back to this particular story. Uh, Esther and Mordecai, they're separated physically. They're separated by their emotional state. And because they can't just kind of get together and, and talk to each other, they have to find somebody to be a messenger between them, a mediator between them. And so they find uh, someone we know now as Hathak. And it's significant that we hear his name. These just a eunuch. We wouldn't ordinarily hear his name, but he plays such a significant role for the rest of the chapter that the whole chapter is essentially a conversation mediated through him. And so we're going to see that as we see the, the conversation come now. Mordecai tells him everything and sends him back with this dossier on the death sentence, all the facts, all the figures. It's all there. And so we read in, in verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so he's lamenting, he's covered in sackcloth and ashes, he's grieving, but he hasn't forgotten what he knows to be true, that God's providential, sovereign oversight of events in the past have come up even to this moment and he starts ticking in his mind, hey, maybe Esther, my cousin, is in this place at this time to get the ear of the king. Maybe that will be the way that God delivers us from this death sentence. And so he uh, tells her that she should go in to the king and beg his favour. But it's a very dangerous plan. Because in doing so, did you notice that what it said, uh, that Esther would have to plead on behalf of her people. That is, she's going to have to out herself. She's going to have to come out of the closet as a Jew. When we first met Esther in Esther chapter 2, we were told that she had two names. Her Jewish name was Hadassah. Her Persian name, Esther. And so what Mordecai is proposing here is really putting a fork in the road for her. What identity will be the one in which she walks down? To whom will she go and advocate? If she stays silent and stays in her Persian identity, walks in her Persian identity, maybe she'll be a survivor because no one will know that she was Jewish. Or will she situate herself in the bigger story, in the lineage of God's people, God's promises, and risk her life and go before the king? It gets even more dangerous though because Mordecai seems to have forgotten something that everybody knew. 
that there was a law. Esther tells us in verse 9, Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Everybody, apparently, across all of the provinces knew this law. And we actually find out why they would have known this law by turning to our Greek historian friend, Herodotus, who I've quoted a few times, not in the Bible, but he, at the same time, a contemporary of these events, uh, wrote out a history of the Persian Empire. And we find out from him that Xerxes' dad, Darius, who's also written in the Bible, particularly around the story of Daniel, he actually came to the throne in very suspicious circumstances. He had seven co-conspirators and they together ended up assassinating the guy who should be rightly king. And they uh, committed together that we're going to let Darius be king in his place. And so Darius had an agreement with them that, hey, if you're going to let me be king, then hey, you can come on in to the palace anytime you want. You can just waltz on in to the inner sanctum. You know, we'll talk shop. We'll talk about how to run the, the empire, the kingdom. You know, you, you're my boys. We're in this together. Just don't come in when I'm with a woman. And so this, this worked for a time, obviously. But then there, there, there came a time where one of his co-conspirators, his name was Interfernes, he had something urgent to come and talk to Darius about. And so he rocked up to the palace and the guards kind of, I'm sure, sheepishly kind of soldered on in, you know, shuffled in front of the front door saying, oh, sorry, Interfernes, you know, like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, he's, he's kind of busy in there. Interfernes wasn't having it. And so we're told by Herodotus that he cut off the ears and the noses of these guards and he tied them together by their neck and he pushed them on in to the palace and then he left. And so these guys kind of shuffle on into Darius. Darius is completely upset by what's happening. He thinks his co-conspirators are out to get him. He goes, sends messengers out. Turns out that Interfernes was acting alone. And so he has him arrested, him and his whole wider family arrested and then ultimately put to death. And so you can imagine because of that, the policy was tightened from then. Now it was that no one at all was able to come before the king only at their invitation or only at the mercy of the king holding out his scepter. Now by the time Darius uh, exits the throne and Xerxes or Hazarus is there. We know that he himself is already insecure. He wasn't the firstborn of Darius, but he was rather kind of politically through maneuvered, put into maneuvers, put into the throne. And so he's likely got imposter syndrome himself. At the same time, Esther tells us that, hey, you know, he's, he's, she's kind of not the woman of the month. She hasn't been invited in to the king's presence for a whole month. And so Esther's trying to find out any way she can to, to, to make it clear to Mordecai, your plan is not going to work. And so Hathak runs back. And then we get this remarkable response from Mordecai. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This guy is clothed in sackcloth and ashes, 
lamenting, grieving. His world has caved in. And in the midst of his world caving in, he's holding on to God's promises. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So we've talked before about God's original promises to Abraham. Hey, through you, Abraham, I am going to make a family. All the world's going to be blessed. We find out in the New Testament, Paul is kind of unpacking the gospel to the church in Galatia. He actually tells them that when God made that promise to Abraham, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. He was saying that, hey, it's not because of who you are. It's not because of what you're going to do. Through you, I am going to do this. I am going to fulfill my promises. And so in a sense, Mordecai, preaches the gospel to Esther here. We have this this great proclamation moment that he is certain that whether it's Esther or not, God is going to bring relief and deliverance. And so to this point, we haven't seen much faithfulness on the part of Mordecai or Esther. They're kind of just kind of blended in to the world there in Susa. But God is going to be faithful in some way, who knows how, God is not a liar. God is not one who would forget. His promises will surely come to pass. In Esther's mind, she's weighing up. You know, if I just stay silent, maybe I'll, maybe I'll survive here. Mordecai makes it clear to her, if you stay silent, you'll be the only one who dies. God is going to deliver us. And so you can imagine the, the wrestle in Esther right now. Maybe... You've had one of these moments where what you know to be right, what you know to be the principled response, what you know, perhaps even God's word to say, it's very clear in your head. But you are feeling the pressure pressing in upon your heart. The consequences of doing what you know to be right loom large and your mind is scurrying, looking for whatever it can find to legitimize you taking the easy way out. Surely there's some way to get around having to do this very public, bold, life-threatening right thing. That's where Esther is right now. And what you and I need in those moments, what Esther needs in this moment is a giant shot of spirit-empowered faith. Faith that the consequences that feel so large and pressing upon us wouldn't dwarf the beauty and the purity and the power of walking in God's way. And while we're there, if you are here and you are in the midst of that moment, let me remind you of Mary, the mother of Jesus' words at the wedding at Cana. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You will not regret doing what you know to be right, siding with what you know to be God's way. Do what God tells you. Let's see what she says. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so praise God. She hears the gospel. She responds 
in faith. For the first time, Esther seems to step into the the dignity of her royal position. She's finally become a a queen in her own right rather than passively kind of siding and going on in compliance. And so she's made a decision to risk coming into the king's presence. She's made a decision to risk identifying herself as one of God's people. She's made a decision to risk playing a part in God's bringing about his promises. And because she knows that, she knows she's going to need God's help. And so she asks for prayer. She asks people to fast for her. Uh, And then as she does it, our chapter comes to a close. The episode fades to black. The credits start to roll. And so what are we, some two and a half thousand years removed from this moment, what are we meant to learn from Esther chapter 4? Well, on the one hand, we learn exactly that, don't we? That two and a half thousand years ago, we learn that the pressures, the Uh, moments that were part of these personal decisions that these two Jewish minorities were caught up in uh, when they were caught up in an impending tragedy. But to look at this story only as history is to stare at kind of a, a magic eye picture and not see through it to the picture that it was made for. This is why the story of God that we looked at two weeks ago is so important because it highlights that these little stories within the Old Testament all point somewhere bigger, to something bigger, to someone bigger. The book of Esther, you know, it kind of becomes the token women's conference, doesn't it? It it makes for a great women's conference content. If you ever plan a women's conference, book of Esther, great option. Because it's great to tell women, hey, you need to dare greatly. You need to be bold and courageous. And you should, ladies. You should be those things by God's help. His Spirit can empower you to do it. But let's not let that fool us into thinking that this story is only about how we might learn from Esther. The story of God unfolding here is meant to lead us somewhere. Little breadcrumbs along the way leading to the bread of life. And so one of the ways that this chapter does that is by helping us feel the predicament that the Jews were under and share in that ourselves. Because our opening scene here in this story was overwhelmed with grief and with sorrow. And that's the right response when a death sentence is looming large over you. But just as we scoffed at the callousness of the citadel, the indifference, the superficiality of it, if we're self-aware, if we're spiritually aware, we might be able to see that perhaps we don't align so much with Mordecai here. We don't align so much with with Esther here in this moment. Rather, we feel like the kingdom of Persia. That we ourselves actually close ourselves off, put our hands over our ears to the sentence of death that hangs over us and hangs over all eternity. Over all humanity, I should say. Because the beginning of the Bible tells us that God gave a, a great command to his people, Adam and Eve, is a great blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Go forth, build a world that echoes to my glory, God was saying. Live lives that are lived for my sake, he was saying. And that command also came with a great warning. Go and do that. Go and flourish. Go and enjoy everything that I've made, except just just avoid that one tree in the midst of the thousands of trees in the garden, because if you eat that, you will surely die. Tragically, our first parents did indeed eat that. They disobeyed God. 
They pushed his word out to the edges of their own lives and instead went their own way. Sin brings death into the world. And so the story and the message of the good news of Christianity starts with bad news. And that is that all of us by nature and choice have sinned. All of us by nature and choice have pushed the word of God, the ways of God to the fringes of our lives that we might hopefully not even have that gnawing sense that we might be accountable to him in our lives. And yet we're told that the wages of sin is death. The consequence of doing so is death. Our hearts by nature and choice are under the judgment of God and the condemnation of sin. And so all of us are being consigned to, yes, physically die, but even more than that, spiritually be cut off from the God who made us to spiritually die. And so like the citadel there in Susa, perhaps we try whatever we can to shield ourselves from that reality of death and the source of its intrusion into our world. But when we face that reality, we can't help but lament and grieve and be full of sorrow for our sin. See, lament is the beginning of God's work in us. Sorrow over our sinfulness is the beginning of God's grace impacting our lives and touching our hearts. And we see that right throughout the Bible, that the right response to being called a sinner isn't to kind of buck against the charge and try to bring in all the good things that we do that might offset the bad, or to look around and point the finger at all the other people who do things that are publicly worse than us to get ourselves off the hook. No, the right response is to be cut to the heart. The right response is to be sorrowful, to be grieved. It's called repentance. And if you are here and you haven't felt a sorrow for your own sin, you've never felt a lament for the ways that you have sinned against God, there is no sense of repentance, then I love you enough to tell you the truth, but you are likely not a Christian in any meaningful sense. Esther 4 helps us reflect upon our own predicament as sinful people before a holy God and the warnings and the judgment that he has sent to our world so that we might know that we're falling short of him. Only when we're cut to the heart will our heart be open enough to be ready to hear the remedy that God has provided. Because just as Mordecai relied on the reality that relief and deliverance will surely come, relief and deliverance has surely come for people like you and me. While Esther was raised up, perhaps we haven't yet found out in the story, for such a time as this, the New Testament tells us that at the fullness of time, when God decided to play the crescendo in the story that he was writing, God sent forth his son, Jesus. And though we typically apply that kind of Kuron coffee cup verse for such a time as this to ourselves, perhaps we have been raised up for such a time. And it's true that God determines the times and the seasons in which we live. That phrase as inspirational as it is, is not so much best applied to ourselves, but best applied to what God has done for us in Jesus. Because you and I have been living under this sentence of spiritual death. And yet for such a predicament as this, for such a time as this, Jesus has come. 
We needed a saviour and a saviour has come. We needed a deliverer and a deliverer has come. We need Jesus. And thankfully in his coming, whereas Esther said, if I perish, I perish, admirable courage and boldness. Jesus came knowing it would be when I perish, I perish. There was no if about what he had to do. He was coming into the world on a mission to lay down his life for us so that he might confront our death in our place for us and that we might be spared from the death that we deserve and receive the life that Jesus won for us. And so it's in the perishing of Jesus that you and I can be freed from the sentence of death that hangs over us. In Jesus, by trusting in him, you get a new heart. By trusting in him, you can be spiritually born again. John 8, Jesus himself says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's not talking about going to sleep for a time physically. We can be free from that spiritual death and reconciled with the God who made us. In Jesus, you will never taste spiritual death. And so the cross on which Jesus died becomes this incredible moment for us as Christians where we are set free. Where the edict of sin before a holy God is actually executed, but only on himself in Jesus Now think about knowing that, what that might do to your life today. Because for Christians, knowing this completely changes our view of death. Funerals for Christians actually can become celebrations. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Oh death, where is your sting? Paul says. Think about what it might do to you to know that that final verdict, that final judgment, in the midst of the pain and the uncertainty, when we come to the ends of our lives, there will be no uncertainty about what happens next for us. For us, death just takes us where we want to be because to live is Christ and to die is gain. So how could you live your life differently if you already know the verdict? This is the good news that has come to us in the Christian faith. We have the verdict because it's already fallen. It fell on Jesus. How might you walk into work tomorrow? How might you walk into your future relationships? How might you start building a family by knowing that death has lost its sting, that you've been set free in Jesus, that the verdict has already come? You can know that today. In Jesus, you can know freedom from our great enemy, death itself. If you are here and you're new to this church thing, this Christian thing, we love you. We want you to be reconciled with the God who loves you even more, who made you. Put your trust in Jesus. Follow Jesus. If you're not there yet, keep pursuing the truth about Jesus. And if you're here and you've been here for a while, the application's the same for us. Follow Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus. Entrust yourself to him and let his death be yours in your place. Jesus is our only hope. And in Jesus, what a hope we have. I'm going to pray. Gracious God, uh, we thank you for the reality that Esther 4 points us toward. 
that though the story of Esther, we're only halfway through, we haven't yet wrapped it up, Lord, already we have resonance with what we know to be true about our story and about the story that you've written in our world. God, we are sorry for the ways that we push you to the margins of our lives, of our thought life, of our hearts. Forgive us for paving our own way and walking confidently down it. Lord, we can see that at the end of that pathway is a pit of death, separation from you forever. And so God, would you by your Holy Spirit work now amongst all of us within the hearing of my voice that you might gift us faith, trust, that we might be able to see the relief and the deliverance that you have handed out for us by sending your son, Jesus. God, we lament it and we grieve it, but we also celebrate the fact that Jesus perished in our place for us, that we who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God, I pray that that would be true for each one of us. Holy Spirit, would you work in us and cut our hearts in such a way that that sorrow and that grief and that lament that is rightly the response to knowing that we fall short of you might also be filled with joy and gratitude and faith as you call us to yourself and have won us to yourself in Jesus. Lord, make us live differently tomorrow because the weight and the looming consequences of our sin has been taken from us. Make us make different decisions tomorrow that we would have otherwise, knowing that we're free to enjoy you and enjoy the life and the opportunities that you give us to make much of you. Come and do that in us, we pray, and help us now lift our voices to you as though we really were what we really are, people who have been set free by the death of Jesus. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.